You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Acts chapter 16. And Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we just so need you to speak to us and change us, Lord. Lord, there's so much in us that is not Christ-like. It just falls so short of your perfection. Lord, we just know that you are daily making us more like you and setting us apart from this world and its ways. And so we just pray that you would do that in us today. As we see the example of these men who, with reckless abandon, pursued hard after you, Lord, and they didn't count their lives as dear to themselves, but they just laid it all on the, live, on the line for the furtherance of your kingdom, Lord. We pray that you would give us that same power that those men had, the same boldness, the same courage, same determination, Lord, that your kingdom would be furthered. We would go beyond the four walls of this church and we would go out into this, uh, this land of dying people, of perishing people. Lord, that we would raise the banner of Jesus Christ and we would be bold to further your name. Just help us with that. Take us deeper in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At the end of chapter 15 of Acts and going into the beginning of 16, uh, we remember that Paul and Barnabas were going to go back through uh, the region of Galatia where they had had their first missionary journey, and they were going to strengthen the brethren that had gotten saved uh, in that first missionary uh, journey. And as they were kind of planning out what the trip would look like, uh, Barnabas thought it might be a good idea to take with them again his nephew, John Mark, or as we know him better as Mark. And uh, if you'll remember from Acts chapter 13 that John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey and only made it like a part of the first part of the way before the the journey was just too much for him and he had to turn around and go home. Uh, the, the trials or the struggles or the suffering or the, the, the being away from mommy, you know, it was just all way too much and he had to go home. And that didn't sit right with Paul. Paul felt like he'd been abandoned by their assistant on this journey. And so as the second journey is being planned, Paul says, whoa, 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 we are not taking Mark with us. Remember how he totally abandoned us and we ended up going clear through Galatia by ourselves. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's ready. But Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, that's his nickname, and, and caring for his nephew says, hey, come on, let's take him. And, and no, we're not. I said we're not. Well, who are you? I mean, you know, and it says that there was no, sh- there, no small dissension among them. The dispute became sharp to the point of they split ways. And Barnabas took his nephew Mark and sailed to the island of Cyprus, whereas Paul partnered with Silas and went north of Israel up through Syria, took the land road up towards that region of Galatia there. And as they came to through the region of uh, Syria to the eastern side of Galatia to Lystra and Derbe, uh, the same area where Paul had been stoned for the proclamation of Jesus and left to die, or perhaps he even did die, uh, just showing, man, it shows the courage of Paul that he would go back there. So say, hey, kill me again. I don't care. You know, I'm taking Jesus. I'm going to strengthen the brothers that were there. And as they were there, they were reuni- reunited with a young man named Timothy, about 15 years old at this time. 
had gotten saved about five years earlier during that first journey of Paul's. And he didn't just waste those five years, but he pressed in to Christ, uh, his mom and his grandma laboring in the scriptures with him. He knew the scriptures by age of 15 and they had made him wise for salvation as Paul writes in first Timothy or excuse me, second Timothy. Um, and so uh, he ends up seeing that this 15-year-old boy is just passionate for Jesus and says, now that kid is useful for me in the ministry. He compelled uh, Grandma Eunice and Mother Lois to help uh, to let their son go on this missionary journey. He circumcised Timothy to make a concession for the Jews uh, that they would be ministering to. And they went on their way uh, to, to, reach, to reach those towns and to encourage the brothers. But as they were traveling, you'll remember that uh, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit uh, to go north up into Bithynia uh, and to go farther southwest into the region of Asia or Galatia. And they had already come from the east and from the southeast. And so they had kind of bonked their head against a wall with, you know, by the Holy Spirit not allowing them to go anywhere. And they found themselves just sitting up at the, by the, uh, top left region of Asia there at Troas, this port city going, Lord, where are we supposed to go? And as they were waiting on the Lord there, you remember that Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man uh, or a dream of a Macedonian man. And this man was pleading with them to come over and help them out in Macedonia. And so immediately Paul knew that was the Lord. They set sail, Luke joining them at the time. And it says that they ran a straight course from Troas uh, and uh, set sail. And, it, and basically the nautical term there of, of uh, setting a straight course means that the wind was at their back, you know, as they'd been bonking their heads going this way. Nope, the Lord forbids it. Oh, nope, the Lord forbids it. Lord, where do you want us to go then? Boom, the Lord shows where they're to go. And then the wind was at their back. You know, they just, they, they had the peace and the, and the power of the spirit. Didn't mean it was easy as we're going to read today, but the Lord was with them. And so, uh, they, they went into Macedonia, which was basically Europe. As we know it today, missions are now going into Europe. And we studied the last time we were in Acts chapter 16, that, uh, when Paul got there, normally his custom was to go into the synagogue, but there was no synagogue, probably not even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi in Macedonia there. And so they found out there was this prayer meeting that was customarily held down by the river. They went down by the river. They met a gal that was praying there. Her name was Lydia. She was a seller of, of scarlet from, uh, from Asia Minor. And uh, it says that the Holy Spirit opened up her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul. The Lord opened up and cultivated her heart so that the seed of the word of God could be implanted and germinate and have roots go down and bear forth fruit. And, 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 and she was converted uh, there as she heard the message of Paul. And her whole household ended up being converted and being baptized. And she persuaded them to stay at her house. How interesting is we studied a couple weeks ago that while the Lord forbid Paul to go into Asia on the missionary journey and sent him to Europe, that the first convert in Europe is a woman from Asia, you know, and just what a neat thought that, you know, that, that while Paul couldn't go into Asia, the Lord brought Asia to Paul. And so the first European convert in human history was a woman 
an Asian woman who was a seller of scarlet named Lydia. Precious, precious woman in church history. As you look in verse 16, you read that now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us crying out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. You remember that Paul met Lydia and and these gals at a prayer meeting that was customarily held down by the river. And now that there's been conversion and now these apostles are in the town, you'll notice that Paul didn't put an end to this prayer meeting. He didn't say, well, we've, we've evolved past this now. You now have an apostle in your midst. And so we will now cease the prayer meeting and go on with more important matters. But no, they continued on in the prayer meeting. Prayer was an important part of the early church. As, as I like to say, there was a pulse of prayer consistently beating and showing life in the early church. And as they're on their way to prayer, what happens but a major distraction what comes across their path, but, you know, a, a major distraction, uh, a demon possessed girl, a fortune teller, man, what a lesson to us that whenever we're on our way to prayer, there will always be distractions brought in from the enemy. Even when we're on our way to, to church or when we're on our way to fellowship, 242 groups or whatever, the enemy does not want us there. The enemy does not want us edified in the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us strengthened. He doesn't want us empowered and encouraged. And so he is going to attack our homes and our families. And how many of you got in a fight on your way uh, to church today? It's just a common thing to get in a a fight. You know, probably 95% of us regularly are, are in some sort of dissension in the car ride to church. You know, the enemy doesn't want us here and he doesn't want us in a right heart when we do get here. And so such an encouragement to you guys is when the Lord has put on your heart, hey, I want you to be at the Pulse this Thursday night, or I want you to be a home group, you know, this night, or I want you to be at church or whatever it is, or in fellowship, or even by yourself in your prayer closet, and something comes up or something seems to be a big distraction away from that, I just want to ask you guys to pray over, to pray for discernment over this situation. Lord, is this you just keeping me home tonight so I can rest and that's okay and that's good or, or Lord that I would be here to comfort these people or whatever. Is that, is that you or Lord, is this just a distraction to get me out of that one time of the week that I was actually going to spend solely with you? Just ask the Lord that. And there will be times that he'll say, no, I I wanted you to be home tonight. You know, your family has been neglected. You need to be with your family tonight and you can pray with your family. But yeah, tonight's a home night. But man, use discernment when those distractions come, because they come, they come regularly and they come in full force and full power. And may we have discernment, whether it's the Lord or whether it's the enemy. But as they're on their way to prayer, there's this, this girl, a slave girl, really, who has a spirit of divination. Uh, perhaps your translation says a damsel with divination. And really, she's a damsel in distress with a python spirit. Some of your translations might say a python spirit. 
And that just goes back to Greek mythology where they believed that there was a giant python spirit that sat at the temple of Zeus and would prophesy and do these odd signs and wonders um, for the Greek god Zeus. And so the, the culture of the day would call this a python spirit within this girl. But Luke knew exactly what it was, that it was a demonic spirit possessing this girl, taking hold of her body. And at this point, he's going to use this girl to be a distraction from the ministry at hand. Although the girl did proclaim words of truth, seems good kind of at first. Wow, even the demons are helping out with evangelism these days, you know. These men are the servants of the Most High God. Wow, thank you. That's encouraging that, you know. You know, and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. You know, the words are all there, rightly. That could be a very... Uh, confusing situation, you know, doesn't first John tell us that, you know, uh, no one can say that uh, Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit and, you know, uh, what the, you know, and a uh, very confusing time. I'm sure Paul knew right away that the situation was demonic at heart as she was helping them with their public relations to the community for many days, being a distraction, probably in an annoying, distracting tone. You know, just being that PR girl. And as she had had a history of uh, being a psychic, you know, of being a medium, of, of having this python spirit. And now she's talking about Jesus in the way of salvation and, and yet still having this python spirit. The Greeks knew that. They could recognize that. The distraction in it was that Paul and, and Silas and Lydia were all guilty by association with this person at this time. The enemy was using this, this girl uh, to, to be a distraction and to hinder the gospel going forth. And for many days she followed him till finally Paul was annoyed. And actually the Greek word is better put grieved in uh, troubled, greatly troubled by this, probably troubled that this girl was being possessed by this spirit, uh, probably grieved that people weren't receiving the word of truth because of this guilt of association. So finally he had had enough and he just turns and he speaks directly to the demon. Notice he's not annoyed at the girl herself. He's not annoyed at, uh, at, at, at her presence. It's the demon that he's had enough of. He just speaks directly with boldness to the demon and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. You know, he talked to the spirit. He talked to this devil, not to the girl. His annoyance was with the enemy. And you know, as Ephesians chapter six tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And how often we think we do, how many, how often do we think the battle is between me and this person, you know, or me and this object when really there's a spiritual battle going on as it goes on to say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age. There's a very real war going on against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul recognized that that's what the battle was. And God didn't need the help of the demons in evangelizing. The demon wasn't helping anything. And so he cast with authority cast the devil out or cast the demon <clears throat> out. It's interesting to just note as James tells us that you do or you believe there's one God, you do well. 
Good job. You believe in a God. We know from the scriptures, it's, it's not just about believing in a God, that there's the existence of a God or a powerful God. Or I believe that there exists a creator out there. But James tells us, you know, you believe there's one God, you do well. Good job. Pat yourself on the back. But then he goes on to say, even the demons believe that and they tremble. The demons know there's a creator. The demons know God is powerful. The demons have the head knowledge of it all. But as we're going to see later on in this chapter, it's not just about having a head knowledge about God, having a belief that he's out there somewhere, you know, he's in all of us. He's in the trees and the wind and, you know, the, the leaves and that's God's out there. You know, uh, it's, it's, that's new agey anyways, but you know, it's, it's more than just believing that there's a God and even the demons believe and they confess that there's a most high God, there's a way of salvation and they bow down and they worship at the feet of Jesus, just as they did before they were cast into the swine back in Mark chapter five, they fell down and they worshiped Jesus because they know whom worship is due. And so the demon was cast out of her. It came out of her that hour in verse 19, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. You know, as the demon was exercised out of this girl, so was their prophet exercised. The prophet was gone. The prophet was cast out as the demons were cast out. And these guys knew that their source of income was out of here. Their wallets were going to be thin. And so we see no compassion on their part for this poor girl that was a slave that was being possessed by this devil, was being humiliated in front of people. No compassion whatsoever. Rather, we see just a selfish materialism in there. So they drag Paul and Silas. They seize them and drag them. You just see the, the violent force that is used in verse 19. They bring them before the authorities. They lie to the authorities uh, by saying that they're teaching these false doctrines, these occultic doctrines that are threatening uh, Rome. Same accusations that were against Jesus. But I love the accusation at the end of verse 20. It's probably the best one, I think. That these men exceedingly trouble our city. There they are in Philippi. And they're already known to be men that are exceedingly trouble the worldview and the world system and the way that those in darkness were walking. The, way the, the ways of the world were being challenged by Paul and Silas, and I'd venture to say even Lydia and her gal friends that had the prayer meeting. They were exceedingly troubling the city. And you know what? I think that's one of our mission statements as the church, as this church. May we exceedingly trouble this town. Not breaking laws and, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails at the sheriff's office or whatever, you know. Nothing like that, you know. We're told by Peter, you know, don't suffer as an evildoer when you suffer. But may, may we be so full of light that, that the darkness would have to hide. And when the darkness has to hide, it doesn't like it. It stirs up thing. The darkness starts to take sucker punches, knowing that it has a little bit of time 
left. May we exceedingly trouble Prineville. I was invited, it was just a neat opportunity, uh, invited to uh, go to Queens Garden Mobile Home Park. A couple of us were out during one of those freezes that we had, and we just drove around. We're like, Do you guys, does anybody know anyone that needs p- help with their pipes? Is pipes frozen, you know? And, and we're just driving around to different mobile home parks. We go into Queens Garden, go in there, and, and I just walk in there, and I just immediately say, hey, I'm from Calvary Chapel. Just right when I say that, lady shakes her head. Mm-mm, you can't do anything here. I'm like, oh, let me finish. Nope, nope, nothing. You're not going to do it. You know, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just said, Hey, we don't want to go door to door, but just if anyone needs any help, will you send them to us? And, and word got out that our church was a group that helped Agatha move in over there. And, and, uh, and just immediately this lady's demeanor changed and she starts talking. Like we were there for an hour talking to her and they invited us to come speak to the whole trailer park um, uh, about whatever it is that we do. And so a couple months had gone by and finally yesterday we went to that meeting and got to speak to the to this trailer park and and you could just tell every time I'd mention Jesus and transformation that the gospel does that there's just a little bit of uncomfortability in the chairs you know <laughs> you know and uh, you're just kind of like feeling things out throwing a Jesus out there and seeing you know and you just tell like oh there's a little bit of shaking going don't 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 stir things up too much you know and uh, you know the, the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing it's an offense to those that are going to hell. But to us you know, who are being saved, it's, it's life and it's power. And so, man, may we trouble this town with the gospel. May people not be comfortable around us. We don't want the world to be comfortable around us. We don't want them to think what they're doing is okay and, oh, whatever you do is for you and I don't judge. Judge not. Judge not, you know. But, man, may we make them uncomfortable in their, in their sin in their rebellion, in their lukewarmness, and we greatly trouble them. You know, a little later in Acts, we're going to read that, you know, these men have turned the world upside down for Jesus. And of course, it's really just turning the world right side up. You know, may we do that in this town by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the accusation there, and even racial accusation, it was Jews versus Romans. These men being Jews are exceedingly trouble our city. But verse 21, we are Romans. You know, we have these laws that we need to, there's this racism. There's this anti-Semitism there. And uh, goes on to say, verse 22, the whole multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they'd laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So immediately, there's not even really a a trial or anything like that. Paul and Silas are taken into the prison, stripped naked, beaten with rods, which which speaks of a club that breaks the body. Many stripes and whippings are laid on them. We're not talking like a little leather strap that's used on the horses to make them gallop a little bit faster. We're talking a Roman cat of nine tails that has nine tails on it with uh, bone and shards of glass and, and sharp rock that would literally latch onto the body as it would wrap around the rib cage. And as it's pulled back away, uh, the skin and the muscle would be torn away, exposing vital organs. You know, the Jews had 39 lashes as the act of mercy. That's, a, that's how many lashes someone could get maximum. But the Romans had no such law. And so these guys were bloody, beaten, 
naked, and then thrown into the inner prison or solitary confinement. Probably no window, probably no fresh air, probably damp and dreary, and probably with the intent that tomorrow these guys would be killed. They'd be killed tomorrow. And so as they're there in this inner prison, as they're there in solitary confinement, verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And so what were Paul and Silas doing in a moment that could only be considered a terrifying moment, you know, a bleak moment in their life? Uh, a trying moment, a time of no hope, it would seem, a time of desperation. You know, it's midnight, it's the middle of the night, they're bruised and beaten and bloody, and what are they doing? Are they complaining and murmuring and doubting and blaming each other? Paul's mad at Silas, blaming him. It's your fault, that, you know? No, it's your fault. You're the one that didn't want to bring Barnabas. He's so encouraging, they would have let us out, you know? And... But no, they're not blaming each other. They're worshiping. They're worshiping. They're singing out. And people are listening to them. These prisoners are listening. And the way that they suffer here shows us the value of Christ. The way that they aren't complaining They're not murmuring, but they're counting even this moment of blood and exposed ribs and broken bones and bruised ribs or whatever their condition may have been. We know it wasn't good. No matter what, God is on the throne. He's sovereign. He's worthy to be praised. He works all things for good for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. And they're able to worship. And in doing that, they're showing how valuable and how powerful and how awesome God is. What are you doing when you're in the midst of your trials? And some of you have hard trials. Maybe even comparable to this. I mean, there are things that though you might not be bleeding and and broken, your heart is bleeding and broken. Your soul is wounded and discouraged and it is hard. But what are you doing in the midst of that trial? Are you counting it all joy when you fall into various trials as James tells us to do? Are you counting it joy? And I encourage you, whenever you're in the midst of something hard in your life, Get your eyes off of yourself and your situation and your current circumstances and the people that are bugging you. Get it off of yourself and get your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon theology, who God is. He's the creator, He's sovereign, He's all powerful. He knows things that are going to happen before they happen. He has a plan. He's going to work all things according or for the good. 
for those that love him. He knew this day was going to happen before it happened, and he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And you know what? I've read the end of the Bible, and he wins. And as you get your eyes off of yourself, and oh, it hurts, and oh, they said this, and oh, ah, ah, and you just kind of get into this, you know, festering, sloppy stew of narcissism and selfishness, and you know, get it off yourself and get your eyes on Jesus. And when you get your eyes on Jesus, something incredible happens. What the Holy Spirit reveals about God and reveals it to your heart, it's then transposed to your mind and comes out your mouth. It's been said that theology, the study of God, always produces doxology. Whenever you study God and his splendor and his majesty and how great and powerful and awesome he is, how can you but just shout out to him and worship him and praise him or even tell others about him? I mean, you'll see that in the scriptures whenever, you know, Paul is writing doctrine down, he'll just start worshiping. You know, I think of Romans chapter 11 and, you know, Paul's explaining God's plan for Israel, that God's not done with Israel, but that he's using this time where Israel has rejected Christ to, he's going to reach the Gentiles and the Gentiles are going to provoke Israel to jealousy and God hasn't replaced the Jews, but one day all of Israel will be saved. And Paul, who has such a heart for his fellow countrymen and is writing this down and God's whole plan for human history and the salvation of mankind that's going to glorify his holy name. As Paul's writing this down at the end of chapter 11, he just busts out in a, oh, the depths and the riches of God. The depths and the wisdom of God. Now, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Who's given to him that God should pay him back? For of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And he just starts out doctrine and writing to the Romans and see what God's going to do. You know? you know, dear Billy, how are you? I am fine. Do you like me? I like you. Check yes or no. Whatever, you know. And then finally the Oh, Jesus, I love you so much. You know, just worship in the letter. Have you ever worshiped in written form? Just busting out in doxology. And man, I encourage you guys to get your eyes onto Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing and how glorified he is. And then let the natural flow of praise and worship just bust out of you. Because I think it will. I know it will. And I just encourage you guys in our public worship times to, again, move beyond where you're at right here, the present circumstances, the bulb burn out on the overhead projector or the sound having a little bit of reverb or Stuart breaking a guitar string or whatever it might be. Move beyond right here and enter into the holy place. You know, so many Christians, their worship life consists of sitting there, picking their fingernails during a time of, of worship. 
you know, or just looking around, just seeing what's going down, you know. But man, the Lord's like, hey, look at me. I know when you look at me, you're going to be in awe. You're going to fall down like you're dead. That's how glorious I am. That doesn't mean that you all have to sing or you all have to lift your hands or whatever, but just be real before the Lord. Worship him in spirit and worship him in truth. Worship him biblically, where the word talks about kneeling. Man, as your heart is kneeling, kneel your knees. Worship him with hands being raised or worship him in song. Or worship him in silence and in meditation. You know, there's times where I'm tired. And I don't really, man, physically, I don't really feel like standing up and lifting my hands. or you know, And I just feel like sitting in a corner and just spending time with Jesus and just being quiet and just meditating on him and meditating on the songs. And that is awesome. Those are awesome times. But when there's times where the Lord is saying, see who I am? Let out a shout, man. See who I am? Sing to me. I know you don't have the best voice, but I'm worthy of song. Sing. May we move beyond our prideful boundaries and hindrances. Move beyond that into what he is worthy of. And these guys here in Philippi, in a jail, bloody and bruised and beaten, they showed how worthy God was of it. You know? Neither one of them choir directors, probably, you know, maybe not, maybe good singers. I don't know, but whatever the case, man, they were singing and the world was watching. The world watches us worship. World watches us worship. Wipe that down. Okay. The world is watching us in our suffering. And in our suffering, as we worship, as we're joyful, they see that and they go, there is something different about that guy. I want it. And we're able to just say, hey, it's Jesus. See how valuable he is? He's so valuable that he is worthy of joy, even in trouble, even in trials. And Paul will write in Philippians chapter four, he's writing back to these people, but he's writing from a Roman cell that time. And he just writes about his joy in chains. Maybe not happiness. Happiness is more based on circumstances. But joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it comes no matter what our circumstance is. I'm joyous because I have Jesus. I just got beat up. I'm in a jail. The chains are rubbing my wrists raw. There's rats everywhere. I haven't eaten in days. I've had more beatings than I can count, but I've got joy. And that same joy is available for you today. The same God who was in that cell with those guys is here in this room right now. And he's able to give you joy and he's able to take your vision off of yourself and put it on him. And he's able to give you perspective and he's able to even grow you in doxology. He's able to even grow you and take you deeper in him in worship. Let him do that today. The prisoners were listening. I don't know how many of you have been in prison or jail, but I've uh, been and visited a major penitentiary. And I'll tell you, I would not want to spend a night there with those guys. And you can only imagine as these guys are in this you know, they're in the troublemaker part of the jail, by the way, too. They're down there with all those guys. And 
all of a sudden they're just like, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice. And, you know, Silas is throwing his harmonies in there, you know, to worship, you know. And these guys are just listening, like, what is going on over there? I've heard that when stuff like that happens, that the, the other inmates start yelling at you. That's you, 405. I'm going to find you during yard time. I'm going to get you, 405, you know, or whatever. Never mind, you know. But these guys weren't hollering threats at them. They're just listening. We're going to see that they actually liked it. We're going to see that it impacted them, this worshiping. In verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. See how the prayer of a righteous man shakes the heavens and shakes the earth? See what prayer does? See why we as a church want to major in prayer? The foundations of the prison are shaking. The doors bust open. The chains just fall off. I mean, this is almost Acts chapter 12 with Peter again when he was freed out of the prison. Miraculously. It's been said that this was the first Christian rock concert and it brought down the house. It's been said. I don't say that, but... These chains were loosed and the keeper of the prison awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, suppose the prisoners had fled. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He was going to be killed if these guys were gone. That was the policy of the Roman government. And so he was just going to end it probably quicker and a lot less pain. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. For we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. You know, it's a miracle that they worshiped in the midst of trials. It's a miracle that this earthquake happened. The prison doors were open. The chains fell down. That's a miracle. But I think another great miracle in this is that every prisoner stayed in his cell. I mean, this was the recipe for a riot. This was the recipe for a prison break, you know? And yet these guys said, you know what? There's something so powerful going on. These guys have shown me such the value of Christ that they're willing to have joy in the midst of beatings and imprisonment, even though they did nothing wrong. And, 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 and I know that there's something connected with this earthquake and all of that. And you know what? It's worth it more for me to stay here in jail and find out what what this is all about than for me to run out and, and be a fugitive. And so they stayed there. And you can imagine being pitch black at night with, you know, the solitary confinement ward that all the door, jail doors were just open and you're the guard. And I mean, you think you're doomed one way or another, but to hear this loving voice of hope come out, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And he brings the light in and he just sees all these prisoners like there is something going on that's bigger than us. We want to know about it. And the jailer wanted to know too. And he, uh, verse 30, he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Probably the most important question to all of mankind. More important than will you marry me? You know? Or what is the meaning of life is what must I do to be saved, to be sozoed, 
to be saved from judgment that is rightly due to you for your sins and your rebellion against a holy God. What do I need to do to be saved? Climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest sea. Tell me what I need to do. And the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe, have faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that when you believe, you're believing that Jesus is Lord. He's the master. He's the boss of your life. That all of you is all of Jesus. He owns you. You've been bought with the price. You're no longer your own. What do I need to do to be saved? Hey, through faith, proclaim Jesus as your Lord. The Lord Jesus. Jesus, his name means savior. It means Yahweh, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. And Christ means he's the Messiah. He's the one that delivers the people from their sins. Believe, have faith in the master savior and you'll be saved. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 tells us that anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who does not believe will be condemned. It's belief. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ in such a way that he is Lord and he is Christ. He is your master and he's your savior. He owns you and as savior, his blood has paid the ransom price as sin once held you hostage. Has that happened in your life? Today, I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans chapter nine, you can just flip over there. We'll look at that. Excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verse nine. Let's come in mid sentence here. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Are you saved today? If you were to die today, and it could happen, where would you go? Where would you spend eternity? He who believes will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Believe today. I encourage you to look on Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. I love this opportunity that Paul had to preach the gospel. I mean, has anyone here ever had an, an encounter like that? What do I need to do to go to heaven? Talking to a guy on Wednesday night who 
who was coming into the church and just got to share the gospel with him and got to share that you can be born again, that you can have uh, a, a new nature, that you can have a new heart and a new mind. You can be set free from all those old things. And he just asked this awesome question. When does that happen? When does that happen? I said, man, the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came up to me today and said, you know what? I received him today. I believe in him. So encouraged by that. But in Acts chapter 2, we have a similar account of Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he shares with the Jews how uh, they had rejected the Messiah and they had actually killed God. And the response of the, the Jews was, we've killed God. What do we need to do? What do we do? And Peter said, hey, repent. Repent and be baptized. And God will give you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And a, a fruit of believing on Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior is that you will repent of your sins. You'll turn from your sins and you'll turn to the Lord. He'll be your master. No longer will those sins be your master. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Was it through the jailer's faith that the rest of his family was saved? Kind of a grandfathered in salvation. Man, I believe it's that when a man is saved or a leader of their home is saved, that a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit begins to take place. They're a light to their kids. You read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a sanctifying work that happens in the home. Perhaps in this case, this jailer was, you know, considering what, what do we need to do to be saved? Guys talking at dinner with his wife and his kids. And, you know, this, this all this Greek mythology and all this Roman, myth, uh, you know, pantheism and all this, you know, it doesn't seem right. I've been hearing this guy out there, Paul and Silas and this weird demon girl, you know, but they've been preaching this message. It's, it's interesting. He sure knew the question to ask there in the prison. What do I need to do to be saved? And perhaps he went home and he shared with his family, you wouldn't believe what happened at work today. And the whole family gets saved. Whole family is baptized. We see this in Cornelius's life and in his family in Acts chapter 10. We see it in Lydia's life here in chapter 16. We see it in, uh, in, uh, here in this Philippian jailer's life. And it says that, Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. You see him kind of doing this penitence to, uh, to Paul and to Silas, you know, washing the wounds that he had inflicted on them. And, you know, and just, man, let me take care of that. But then also, man, he was able to show I've been washed. He publicly proclaimed that he'd been crucified with Christ and yet now he lived and all of his sins had been washed away. So immediately he and all his family were baptized and when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. I mean, man, when your whole family gets saved, there is such a joy that you know that you will all inherit eternal life and you'll get to be with Jesus forever. Such a joy. Third John tells us that I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. 
I love it when Russell wants to pray. He doesn't always want to. I'm still praying. <laughs> but when he does, and, he, and he'll just start worshiping all by himself with his little blue ukulele that's out of tune, and he doesn't even have, you know, he just, Jesus, you are the Spirit of God. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, some stuff that's not quite sound doctrine sometimes that you're correcting, you know, I am the Spirit of God. And, okay, you know, you know let's just tune that rightly, you know. But, you know, man, he wants to know Jesus, and that is so awesome as a dad. And so this jailer, he's so excited. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've been beating us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they'd seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. You know, Paul in his, in his toughness, you know, is not going to get played. He's not going to get played. He's not going to be cheated here. You know, he's a Roman citizen. He had rights. And because he was a Christian, those rights were thrown out the window. And he knew that was going to happen to every Christian that came into Philippi or that was part of that church from that point on. And he wouldn't have it. And so he did the first Christian sit-in, you know, as he sat down in the jail and said, I'm not leaving. And, uh, you know, they were able to be let out there. And then at verse 40, we see the the early church gathered and it's, it's growing. You've got Lydia. You've got the women from the prayer meeting. You've got this demon-possessed girl that probably has been saved. You've got the jailer and his whole household and Lydia's whole household. You've got um, maybe even some of these prisoners are now part of the church there in Philippi. And it's so cool to see, you know, each one, and you'll say Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, all from different walks of life, all from different uh, geographical backgrounds, all from different social aspects of, of culture. And yet within the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There's unity within the church. And Paul is going to write in Philippians, keep that unity, keep that unity. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he's going to say that, man, that church in Philippi, he loved that church in Philippi. They were, they were awesome brothers and sisters, but they were a giving church. And they would give according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Man, as we just learn from just the suffering of Paul and Silas and their joy in the midst of trials, you know, just wonder, man, were they acting like this in the prison because they knew that there'd be stories written about them later and they'd be told for thousands of years? Or was it just a fruit of their life? I'm so thankful for these guys that hazarded their lives for the sake of the gospel because we wouldn't be here today without them. And that's all throughout church history. Just reading this week about some of the, just the, the church fathers that helped translate the Bible into English and how they were uh, burned at the stake. And then after they were burned, their bones were ground up and thrown into the river so that there wouldn't even be a memory of them. And these men that just did so much that we could have the Bible in our language and to think that there's people that never even pick it up, don't even care that, that we have it. But men have hazarded their lives for us. 
I just even wanted to just read this story that I read this week. The last day of the fast, so Saturday, uh, we were fasting and praying for the persecuted church. People that are in the same place as Paul and Silas were, as Hebrews tells us, we're to remember those who are in prison and pray for them as if we were chained right there with them. And how we just fall short of that so often. We forget that, you know, daily people are beheaded for the name of Jesus. And read of this girl, young girl named Asia Bibi. And uh, I'll just read you this quick story, this quick article. On November 8th, Asia Bibi was sentenced to death by a judge in Pakistan. According to the voice of the martyr's contacts, the judge also fined Asia $1,190 and told her she had seven days to appeal the decision. Voice of the martyr contacts report that her attorney will appeal the sentence. Asia was arrested by police on June 19th, 2009 and charged with blasphemy after she engaged in a religious discussion with co-workers. Many of the local women, including Asia, worked on the farm of Muslim landowner Muhammad Indris. During their work, many of the Muslim women had pressured Asia to renounce Christianity and accept Islam. Her family is one of only three Christian families in a village of more than 1,500 families. On June 19th, there was an intense discussion among the women about their faith. The Muslim women told Asia about Islam, and according to Voice of the Martyr sources, Asia responded by telling the Muslim women that Christ died on the cross for our sins. She told them that Jesus is alive. Our Christ is the true prophet of God, she reportedly told them. Upon hearing this response, the Muslim women became angry and began to beat Asia. Then some men took her and locked her in a room. They announced from mosque loudspeakers that she would be punished by having her face blackened and being paraded through the village on a donkey. Local Christians informed the police who took Asia into custody before the Muslims could carry out their plan. She's currently being held at the police station in Nanaka City. Christians there had urged the police not to file blasphemy charges, but police claimed that they had to go forward because of pressure from local Muslim leaders. So just kind of a... A, a, a modern situation that's happening right now. And may we pray for Asia. She's been sentenced to death uh, for proclaiming Jesus Christ. And you know, these people, they realize that their present comfort and their privileges of life are nothing. They're a pile of poo compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus and furthering his kingdom. And may we have the same boldness that the Holy Spirit would be in us and, and make us so bold like Asia and like Paul and like Silas that we would not back down in telling people about Jesus. Because this is not the end, us being in this room together. This is not it. From this room, we then go out and make disciples, proclaim the gospel, carry the banner of the name of Jesus to the nations. Like Paul and Silas, planting churches. Exponential growth of the kingdom. Faithful men, training up faithful men, training up faithful men, and every one of them willing to forsake all for the furtherance of the kingdom. May the Holy Spirit empower us to do that today.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.